Amen. Well, if you've just closed your Bible, I heard one or two slam shut immediately after we finished the psalm. Do uh, keep it open at Psalm 145. And um, I think, uh, I don't know whether you would agree with this. For me, um, one of my least favourite things um, about the pandemic has been the period of time in which we weren't able to sing in church. And actually, when churches were allowed to sing again, I heard so many people say, oh, isn't it great that we're able to sing again? I don't know whether anybody saw um, yesterday in The Telegraph, Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York, um, wrote an article saying exactly that. Um, He was saying how good communal singing is for us spiritually, physically, and it doesn't really have much of a place apart from in football matches and in churches. There isn't very much communal singing anymore, and yet it is so good for us. And it was fantastic that churches are now able to worship together again. Now, I imagine some people might have questioned the timing of the Archbishop's article, given that sort of there's a lot of increasing nervousness at the moment with cases rising and so on. And uh, I suppose all of us probably will need to work out what level of risk we're comfortable with when it comes to singing together. Um, But on that note, I've been personally greatly reassured by uh, the scientific study that was carried out by Public Health England. I don't know whether you saw this. Um, In collaboration with Imperial College London, Bristol University, the Lewisham and Greenwich NHS Trust and the Royal Brompton Hospital, they measured the amount of aerosols which are emitted by people both speaking and singing. Uh, In fact, they were singing Happy Birthday at a range of different decibels and measuring how much, uh, how much um, aerosol was emitted. And the study found that actually singing produces no more respiratory particles than speaking does at the equivalent volume. Um, so that's hugely reassuring that actually singing, they said, is no more risky than the same volume of speaking. A huge reassurance to those of us who want to be able to sing in church safely and uh, indeed, hopefully, a reassurance to anyone who's in two minds about coming this evening to sing at our carol service, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Everyone's invited. We've got Gary, uh, who's going to be playing the organ, and I hope the singing is going to be terrific. But I wonder, all this talk of singing, whether you've really given much thought to the fact that we sing at all. I mean, it is a bit strange. Uh, As I say, there aren't very many other groups that actually do this. Uh, If you go to a lecture, or you attend a town council meeting, or you're in a Pilates class or a Skittles match. I mean, nobody sort of stands up at the beginning and says, you know, would you all stand together? We're going to sing at the beginning of our meeting. It's, when you think about it, pretty unusual that we do that every single week. Um, Every week, in virtually every church, uh, in virtually every denomination, in virtually every country of the world, Christians are singing. And it's been that way for thousands of years. Thousands of years... Two, three thousand years old this book is. We've been looking, as I say, at the book of Psalms. And we've been seeing what they teach us about prayer. But of course, the book of Psalms really is a book of songs. Uh, The word psalm actually means praise. So the Psalms are a book of praise songs. And actually, if you look at the inscription at the top of Psalm 145 there, you'll see it says a psalm of praise. This is the only one of the 145 Uh, sorry, 150 psalms there are, which has that inscription. So this is saying, it's written by David, who of course was a musician, King David. And this is a psalm, a praise about praise. 
So it's a great place to go to look at why is it that the people of God sing at all. And that's what we think about this morning. And we're going to come at it with three questions to ask of this psalm. What is praise? Why do we praise? And who can praise? So the what, why, and who of praise is what this psalm teaches us. Firstly, what is praise? We'll have a look down at verse 1. And there are so many different words which are used. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Verse 2, extol your name. Verse 4, commend, tell. Verse 5, speak. Verse 6, tell, proclaim. Verse 7, celebrate, joyfully sing. In fact, in these first seven verses, there are nine different words there to describe different forms of the same thing of praising, extol, exalt, commend, tell, speak, proclaim, celebrate, joyfully sing. Uh, And in fact, actually, if you look at this psalm, you can see, well, if you look at the footnote, can you see right down at the bottom in italics, uh, it says, um, this psalm is an acrostic poem, the verses of which begin with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, that doesn't come through in our English translation, but actually what this is saying is that there are 21 verses in this psalm. Uh, That's how many letters there are in the Hebrew alphabet. And it's going through, it's almost like if you imagine it's the A to Z of praising and singing. It's spanning the entire vocabulary, using every single different letter, praising in every different kind of way for every different kind of reason. But what this psalm really is showing us is that actually all of these words, what they have in common, they are all verbal. Uh, They are a spoken or a sung expression of admiration and love for God. You can't really praise God silently. You praise with your lips. Now, of course, King David was somebody who loved to sing. And if you read the story of David's life, he was, as I say, a musician, and he was somebody who was noted for his exuberant and enthusiastic praising of God. In fact, there's one incident in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where his wife David's there praising the Lord and his wife spots him out the window and he's really going for it, quite enthusiastically praising God with all his might and it says that she was embarrassed of him. Uh, Perhaps not particularly British uh, in the way that he praised the Lord. But that was David. He was worshipping wholeheartedly and continuously. Look at verse 2. Every day I will praise you. Here we are on a Sunday. Perhaps we think of singing. Well, it's a Sunday sort of thing, isn't it? Once a week. Um, but here, actually, David prays every day. And in fact, every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. So the praises of God are wholehearted and continuous and unbroken. In fact, look at verse four. One generation commends your works to another. And I just think it's amazing to imagine if David could have seen us here today, He probably had no idea how prophetic those words of his were going to be. That his generation commended the works of the Lord to the next generation, who commended them to the next generation, to the next generation, and so on and so on and so on, all the way down through history, to a generation that commended them to the generation that commended them to us. And here we are, if you like, the spiritual uh, descendants of the worshippers of God, which is going back all the way through history. And in fact, we've already sung one of David's psalms this morning, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and worship his holy name, which we sung a minute ago. 
Not a particularly new uh, lyric, that. Uh, well over a couple of thousand years old, King David wrote that, Psalm 100, uh, 103, which has recently been set to music. So what is praise? Firstly, well, it's the, it's the wholehearted, continuous, everlasting, joyful, exuberant, verbal exaltation and celebration of God. Well, why? Why do, why do we do that? Second question, why do we praise? Why should we praise? Why are Christians so enthusiastic about singing and exalting and extolling and proclaiming and celebrating forever, every day? Well, David gives us the reason here. Um, the motivation for praise, it's that praise, it's the proper response to God. Actually, when you encounter God, the right response is to praise him. It's a response to both his character and his works, to who God actually is and what he's done. It's a response to who God is. Look at verse 8. Who is he? Well, verse 8 tells us the Lord is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. He's good. He's compassionate on all that he has made. In fact, in this psalm, there are at least 16 different descriptions of what God is like, his character and his nature. It says that he's great, he's mighty, he's glorious, majestic, wonderful, awesome, good, righteous, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, loving, everlasting, trustworthy, faithful and holy. What a description. That's our God. But we praise God not just because of what he's like, but because of what he's done, verse 4. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They tell, verse 6, of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. I'm sure you can probably think back over the course of your life to the, the ways which God has worked in your life, his acts, his works, his deeds. David was probably thinking back to God's works and his deeds in the life of Israel, the way that God brought the Israelites up out of slavery in Egypt and took them through the promised land and fed them with manna in the wilderness and into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. What an amazing rescue God had brought about in their life. And yet when David wrote this, he was writing, remember, before Jesus. So actually the most wonderful work, the greatest deed, the most mighty act that God had ever done hadn't even taken place yet. Easter hadn't happened yet. Christmas hadn't happened yet. So actually, we've got even more to look back on than David did to motivate us to praise. Look at verse 5, second half of it. David says, I will meditate on your wonderful works. And when we do that, we'll praise. One friend of mine finds this all a bit awkward. He's not a big fan of singing in church. He's not particularly musical. And um, he finds it all just a bit sort of, a bit stressful, I think, the music in church. And yet I once went with him to Upton Park, where he had a season ticket uh, for his beloved West Ham. And what happened? He was on his feet, arms in the air, and at the top of his lungs, he was singing, I'm forever blowing bubbles, (laughs) which, if you know West Ham, that's their theme tune. Well, that's praise. We praise what we love. And C.S. Lewis famously said that when we love something or someone, 
Actually, the enjoyment of it isn't quite complete until we've praised to someone else. You know, if we read a good book, um, you know, we've, we've loved this book, but actually our enjoyment of it isn't quite complete until we've said to someone, oh, you must read this terrific book. And we want them to read it as well. And that's praise. It's actually the consummation of our enjoyment. And so C.S. Lewis says, the world actually rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favourite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favourite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. So praise is the consummation of enjoyment. The more we see how good God is and what he's done, the more we enjoy him, the more we'll praise him. Well, thirdly, finally then, who actually can praise God? Who can praise him? Because actually there's a problem. And the problem is that the reality is, it does actually, our praise, match up with this psalm. You know, maybe we're sitting here and thinking, well, that all sounds very admirable. You know, very sort of uh, holy. And in some ways, maybe we think, well, we'd love to be somebody who's perpetually caught up in the rapturous praises of God. And it sounds like King David certainly was somebody for whom actually his delight in the Lord positively bubbled over into every aspect of his being. But maybe we're sitting here and thinking, well, frankly, my praise isn't really like that. And my heart is quite hard or cold. Maybe we do feel awkward about praising. Maybe if some of us secretly enjoyed the fact that we didn't have to sing for a few months. Yeah, maybe we're thinking, well, our concentration span isn't very good. You know, one minute we're singing, the next minute you're thinking, what's for lunch? I don't know, is it only me who does that? I don't. Sometimes I'm there worshipping God. I've got my eyes closed because I know all the lyrics. And I'm thinking, I really must put the car in for a service. I'm thinking, hang on a minute. I'm supposed to be worshipping God here. How can my mind be drifting all over the place? You know, God isn't going to be very happy with me. You know, frankly, my praises aren't very wholehearted a lot of the time. Often I don't praise God every day like David did. Is my praise good enough for this great and awesome and majestic God who has done so much for me? Well, that's why we need to ask who? Who is praising God in this psalm? And did you notice the way that the psalm changed direction a number of different times. So at the beginning, look at verse one. Who's, it's all in the first person, isn't it? He says, I will praise you, my God, the king. He's addressing God directly. And yet then he's addressing us. Verse three, he says, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. And then it's back to God again. He says, verse five, he's saying to God, they speak of your glorious splendor and I will as well. I will meditate on your wonderful works. And then it's back to us again, verse 8. He tells us, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. The Lord is good. He's worthy of praise. So who is praising in here? It's the worship leader. In this case, it's King David, God's anointed king. But even David's praises were not perfect. David let God down catastrophically. And yet he pointed forward to another king, another anointed worship leader who would praise the Father perfectly because actually 
Jesus is the true and ultimate worship leader who leads us faithfully in praise. Let me read very quickly from the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 2. Don't worry too much about turning to it. But in Hebrews 2 verse 11, it says, both the one who makes people holy, in other words, Jesus, he makes us holy, and those who are made holy, in other words, us, are of the same family. Both Jesus and us are of the same family. So it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And he says, and he quotes here one of the Psalms, Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. You see, Jesus is our true worship leader. Actually, when we worship God, it's not all on us, actually, to get it all right or to do it properly. He's the one who prays the Father with every fibre of his being, who lived that the life transformed by worship. He extolled, he commended, he told the next generation. And so when we're embarrassed or awkward, he's patient with us. You know, if we're not a particularly good singer, it says here he's not ashamed of us. When our mind wanders and we get distracted he remains focused he's the one who leads us in praise and we just have to join in which is why we say therefore with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven led by jesus christ the true worship leader we lord and magnify his glorious name evermore praising thee and singing so let's be still for a moment as we pray.